My name is Sarah from Weird Horizon and as always thank you for joining me and thank you for listening this week. We're back to sort of basics in terms of format. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to have a really deep dive into the history of Hollow Earth theory. Find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts. So, Simsonia was not the first Hollow Earth novel, although it was one of the earliest and was arguably one of the best known. It popularised the theory in a way that even the most accessible and widely read journals and circulars of the time never could. Simsonia reports to be a record of a voyage south and through the southern polar hole to the Earth's interior. This voyage is said to have sailed the 1st of August, 1817. Now, the interior they find is lit by two suns by day and by two moons at night, each refracted through the polar openings, causing the borealis, the aurora borealis, as we experience them. The people within are friendly, cultured and educated, and quickly teaching the explorers their language. They possess a weapon surpassing contemporary military design, a dirigible flamethrower. This weapon is a deterrent from interference from the surface world, and the explorers are eventually asked to leave. Now again, as Chaplow sort of expands on this, the founding of the book in the known, sailing, sealing commerce, and progressing to the unknown a step at a time, made it more like to be perceived as credible an important factor in its reception. In the early 19th century, exploration narratives were hugely popular, appealing to our desire for escape and feeling very cutting-edge and contemporary. They felt exploratory and educational, whether they truly were or weren't. And this story dealt with the unknown world of the Poles, which had not at that time been fully explored. The popularity of these kinds of narratives did indeed drop off when there were fewer tracts of unexplored lands making the papers every day. So even though it was sort of fiction, it's the kind of fiction that people like to believe could be true, and when it was proved demonstrably scientifically false, they dropped off a little bit in popularity, because you just don't have this nice idea of, oh, maybe it is true, you know, I know I'm reading a work of fiction, but it's, it's nice to sort of have that door left open that it could potentially be true, at least partially true. Now, later authors drew heavily on Simsonia as it was created for, as by design, as we'd explained. Poe, for example, reproduced sections from it in his own works. So Simsonia was followed by a large number of hollow earth fictions, commencing with Poe and Verne and continuing on, as we've mentioned, to the present day. Hollow Earth fiction as it exists today exists as a subset of utopian or fantastic voyages in literature. So let's talk about Poe. So Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, popularly shorted to Pym, is the only complete novel ever written by Poe, apparently. Poe was, according to some, impressed by Reynolds' lobbying of Congress for the Arctic Expedition, So he was impressed by how well Reynolds seemed to be carrying on this legacy of Sims after Sims' death, and was in turn impressed by Sims and his theories himself. Now, the novel Pym, 
relates the story of a young lad on a whaling ship. Um, so again, setting it in the contemporary, in known industries, and then step by step, taking it into the unknown. So he's on this whaling ship, and he endures mutiny, shipwreck, and cannibalism before the novel abruptly ends as they sail towards the South Pole. It's theorised then that the characters had strayed into the southern interior entrance. As the novel seems to sort of start out as a straightforward seafaring adventure, but it is increasingly twisted by its overlap with Reynolds' work on hollow earth theory. So perhaps representing textually the journey the text took as Poe was writing and grew more and more interest in Reynolds' work. So briefly, the narrative ends like this. This is a summary of the ending. Pym and his companion discover a labyrinth of passages in the hills and take an island native with them as hostage as they continue their journey. The small boat drifts further south on a current of increasingly warm water, which has become milky white in colour. After several days, they encounter a rain of ashes and then observe a huge cataract of fog or mist, which spills open to accommodate their entrance upon approach. The native dies as a huge shrouded white figure appears before them. The story has many of the hallmarks of Sim's theories. For example, the idea that the polar ice stopped after a point and that the poles themselves were more habitable than we are led to believe. Now, this would make sense with the increasingly warm water of Poe's novel. Then there is the huge mist or something large obscuring the view of what the poles hold. Now, this idea of a visual obstruction is a persistent one to this day. And as we said, this is kind of new to the genre, the idea that something might be accidentally or by design obscuring what is truly at the poles. This only really came about now. Only in sort of Simsy and Hollow Earth do we find this idea of something obscuring it. And lastly, there is the presence of a white figure. Yeah, a white figure rather than a white mass, that the area in this story is inhabited by something human-like and by a huge shrouded figure. This idea of a huge life form, perhaps supported by the rich ecosystem thought to be interior Earth, it creates a rich sort of breeding ground for ideas and in which Poe creates the first popular hollow Earth account that is genuinely threatening. So it's got all the hallmarks of modern hollow earth theory and it's got all the hallmarks of Simsian hollow earth theory. This idea of a rich inhabitable in a world that is in fact inhabited by some kind of figure, some sort of person-like figure and this sort of ambiguously threatening as they are in Simsonia with their Weapons far outstripping our own, supposedly only used as a form of defence, but they are again sort of ambiguously threatening. Now this is a fairly new idea that you can't say was hinted at in any of the previous scientific theories we were talking about, so I just wanted to keep it in your head. But I think we should probably talk about the de facto Hollow Earth novel now, which is Jules Verne's Journey to the Centre of the Earth. So Jules Verne's Journey to the Centre of the Earth is a classic French sci-fi novel published in 1864 
and then revised and expanded in 1867. Professor Otto Liedenbrock is our eccentric protagonist, believing that there are volcanic tubes reaching into the centre of the earth. He and his nephew then descend down an inactive volcano and discover a kind of pocket of untouched civilization beneath the earth, with vast oceans and living prehistoric life. Thus it brings in a kind of aspect of time travel, this idea of looking back at a prehistoric time through a sort of pocket of untouched civilization that has not gone through the same changes that we have done on our terrestrial Earth. And from this, of course, came things like Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World and just Jurassic Park in general. The map to this entrance to the interior world is found in a coded message in a book of a scientist previous to him who had discovered this secret entrance and disguised it by a simple transcription cipher for a future mind to discover. Again, this idea of a simple code existing in seemingly plain sight to those with the forethought to look for it. I imagine that's what going down the hollow earth rabbit hole feels like to some. That if you look hard enough, there seem to be all these clues dating back further and further in time. That if you only look hard enough, there's just going to be a truth waiting just below the surface. I would say, of course, that this is a huge tenet of conspiracy theory beliefs in general. But even so, it is interesting to see it laid out here so explicitly in the text. Otto and his nephew have a very interesting relationship. The nephew, Axel, being the rational voice pointing out the dangers of the journey and how unlikely they are to succeed, as Otto is the one rushing onwards. Nonetheless, soon they are floating down an impossible river, in a raft made from petrified ancient trees, and watching dinosaurs battle it out in a scene of everyday survival. Although the pattern of influence is pretty clear again, it seems as if Verne introduces a facet of hollow earth thinking that was conspicuously absent in previous talking points, and that is essential of how we talk about it today, i.e. the fact that this kind of isolated interior earth may contain ancient creatures, or creatures who have evolved or lived separately from ourselves for a very long time. It also brings up the lingering question of whether they have separated themselves from us intentionally, whether this separation is unilateral or not, and how we would communicate with life forms within, and whether that would even be possible. It goes beyond the simple question of whether such a place existed, but if it did, what would that mean for us as people? I think we will go on to now some of the religious responses to the theories, as I think, again, we are at an interesting turning point. Now, Cyrus Reed Teed was an alchemist from Utica, New York, practicing what he called eclectic medicine in the 1860s. Through his experiments with alchemy, and almost certainly failing over and over again to transmute substances into other substances, he came to the circuitous theory that the entire universe may in fact be made of one substance. But that's not exactly what we're interested in today, not quite. Now later in his life he changed his name to Koresh, and as part of the Russian system of universology, he created a theory that takes into account how foreshortening and perspective 
work upon what we see visually to suggest that the world may in fact be concave and can be measured as such and that we live inside of it. Now this worldview was based on the observable, but the observable through a religious lens, and this idea did not come from a vacuum. You may notice in it some echoes of hermeticism, which we will talk about later. Now this is a quote from his writing. The alchemico-organic cosmos is the ultimate and therefore the most outward expression of creative power. Mankind is ignorant of God until his handiwork is accurately deciphered. To understand the universe is to understand and be close to God. Now the macro, cosmic or grand man, similar to Kircher's macro and microcosm, put forward the idea of the observable at a small scale being true at a large scale. Something we know not to be true from what we know of thermodynamics, but even so. But even if every respected mind of the time is telling you the same thing, it can violate the kind of truths we feel, the satisfying truths or narratives that we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion. This knowledge is so related to the structured alco chemical organic macrocosm that to know of the earth's concavity and its relation to universal form is to know god while to believe in the earth's convexity is to deny him and all his works all that is opposed to koreshanity is antichrist his argument was that the earth is hollow and we are in fact living inside its shell and the reason for such is that it mirrors a kind of cell a cell as a universal form and a building block from which everything is made. Now, as you may have already gathered, this is not a new concept. The macro and microcosm of Kircher's writing were not solely his own creation either, but a facet of hermeticism, philosophical and religious system of teachings based on the purported teaching of Hermes Trismegistus, a legendary combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Toth. Now this system of teachings draws in scientific, religious and esoteric ideas, but is based on a belief in the ultimate power of God in a very interesting cyclical way. God is the nature of the cosmos, being both the substance in which it is made and the governing principle which orders it. Yet the things themselves and the cosmos were all created by God. Thus God creates itself and is both transcendent as the creator of the cosmos and imminent as the created cosmos. God is everything, everything is God, and these holy patterns can be found wherever you look. Now one text regarded as the foundation of the teachings, the Emerald Tablet, is popularly paraphrased as such. That which is above is like to that which is below, and that which is below is like to that which is above. Or roughly... As above, so below. This neatly puts forward one of the main theories for why hollow earth hypotheses still circulate and why they gain traction. I will summarise it with an excellent quote from Donald E. Simonex turning the inside out from Lockhaven University. On an emotional level, many people are uncomfortable with the vast and unimaginable size of the universe as described by conventional science. They prefer a smaller cosmos with everything nearby. 
What possible use could the creator have for all the stuff so far away from us? How wasteful to create all that vastness for us to admire on a starry night. So what does Hollow Earth theory take from what has come before? Well, it takes forward the belief in the individual to put forward a popular idea and to be recognised from it. So we are talking about John Sims Jr. here. The idea that if you put forward the time and the effort, you can disseminate your ideas and you will be recognised for and people will listen to you. It also brings forward this idea of needing to explain what we feel with an explanation that feels right and feels comforting. So these idea that certain things might be narratively more comforting and some things might fit our idea of the truth better than the truth does. It also brings forward an idea of an American enterprising spirit, a belief in scientists of the past, in their multidisciplinary approach, and that they may in fact be leading with their guts in a way that makes them more trustworthy than modern scientists. It also brings forward the idea of a code written in plain sight, the idea of a truth that is just below the surface, and if you have the time and the diligence to dig for it, you can find it for yourself. It puts forward the idea of proofs plainly visible to the naked eye, provable at small scale and by the layman, but unfortunately it also brings forward a distrust of authority and of the need for the dissenting voice in pursuit of the truth. So where we are now, we circle back round to Rodney M. Clough. So this is the website we talked about in the first Hollow Earth deep dive. So the first offered proofs for Hollow Earth in Clough's website are not older scientific proofs, although there are some deeper down the site, nor are they philosophical or religious beliefs. More they are based on regular people stumbling across a truth that is being hidden from us. And the truths they find vary wildly from things like proof of religious figures' existence to the literal temporal Garden of Eden to the existence of UFOs and previously lost civilizations. So one interesting example I'd like to pick out is Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Bird was an American naval officer and explorer and recipient of the Medal of Honor. He was also a pioneer of polar logistics. And as celebrated as he still is for his bravery and heroism, as truly his list of accomplishments are too numerous for me to detail here even briefly, it is his disputed polar expeditions that entangle him with hollow earth. In 1926, he attempted to fly over the North Pole in a tri-motor monoplane named Josephine Ford, and this craft was named after the daughter of the then president of the Ford Motor Company. He was one who helped finance this expedition, so as already mentioned, this is an excellent fit for modern hollow earth theory, as it is predicated on a decorated American citizen but a regular guy with a true enterprising spirit financed by business, not the government, and so it's distancing itself from a system which many conspiracy theories paint as inherently untrustworthy. So when he returned to the United States from the Arctic, Bird became a national hero. But it was not long before doubts were raised about the truth of the expedition. In 1958, Norwegian-American aviator and explorer Bernd Balken cast doubt on Bird's claims on the basis of his knowledge of the airplane's speed. 
and it was a fact he claimed that Bird had confessed to him shortly after his return from the expedition. Nevertheless, this sets up in our position our hero Bird and those who wish to discredit him and his accomplishments. Now, Operation High Jump was a Navy Arctic development program aiming to establish an Antarctic base on the continent. It is said by some to be when Bird flew into the polar opening as part of a secret, off-the-books mission. Why did he do this? It was said that Bird may have been attempting to find a secret German base dating back to World War II. As the Germans were said to have explored extensively, anything even supposedly related to their disputed Aryan origins, including Antarctica. But Bird did not find a secret base there. More, he supposedly found Agatha, a legendary underground city. And he met there with their leader, who he calls the Master. Now, the Master's concerns no doubt mirror Bird's own. And the civilization at the centre of the Earth hint that they may in fact have allowed themselves to be found at this time, as they were observing our civilization from a distance and were growing concerned. So this is quoting from Bird's disputed diaries, which we'll go into, but briefly. Our interest rightly begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was the alarming time we sent our flying machines, the flugelrads, to your surface world to investigate what your race had done. You see, we have never interfered before in your race's war and barbarity. But now we must, for you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for your man, namely that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the power of your world, and yet they do not heed. These messages, sent to our leaders and supposedly ignored, again set up a relationship of an untrustworthy, authoritative structure, and the need and the ability of the ordinary person or individual to escape it, Bird himself does. And it sets this all up against the ticking clock of an imminent nuclear war. According to the much-disputed diary of Bird's, he was ordered by the government to keep quiet on what he witnessed. Despite his urge to pass it on on behalf of humanity, he explains the sort of dichotomy and sort of tension within himself by saying, I am a military man and I must obey orders. Whether this diary is truly factual or not, or frankly even birds writing or not, naturally it was latched onto by various other Hollow Earth authors such as John B. Leeds, and he wrote a book on the subject, Genesis of the Space Race, the Inner Earth, and Extraterrestrials. And it paints the portrait of the kind of individual that is typical for modern Hollow Earth theorists. So, from Leith's author profile on Amazon, this is a brief rundown of his origins. So, Leith is described as preternaturally smart, born with a photographic mind, and supposedly the most highly decorated soldier of any war, although not allowed to acknowledge this until after his death. Now, the book also comes with a lengthy preamble explaining all the disinformation forced to be included with the manuscript by the CIA in order to allow its publication. Bird's actual thoughts surrounding these events give an interesting insight as to why his name has been used to support such a viewpoint. As we've already touched upon, polar exploration was in effect shrinking the world. There were not many unexplored regions to explore. It provided one of the last avenues for exploration and research 
that might yield environments and worlds vastly different to what we know, setting aside, of course, the space race and exploring other planets. Being a naval officer, of course he came at this from a military perspective, but it highlights the tensions that bring about these kinds of conspiracy theories. The idea that the world is much smaller than we think, that we are not as isolated as we think we are, and that if certain nations wish to capitalise on a position of the Poles for military gain, they are not the only ones with these ideas. So I'm going to quote from a Medium article on Hollow Earth and the case of Admiral Richard Byrd. In an exclusive interview with International News Service, talking about the recently completed expedition, Byrd said that the most important result of his observations and discoveries is the potential effect that we have in relation to the security of the United States. The fantastic speed with which the world is shrinking, recalled the Admiral, is one of the most important lessons learned during his recent Antarctic exploration. I have to warn my compatriots that the time has ended when we are able to take refuge in our isolation and rely on the certainty that the distances, the oceans and the poles were a guarantee of safety. Some theories as to why conspiracy theories are so persuasive say it hinges on this, this fear response that he just hinted at, that it's a response to the unknown or an attempt to make sense of something which does not make sense on its own. In some ways, Hollow Earth can be seen as an attempt to give our home, our terrestrial planet, a literal heart with humanity at its centre. That it can sort of serve as a blueprint for the world created by a benevolent god with humanity at its centre. That the universe was created in the image of God. That we are created in the image of God. And so... The entire world is permeated by this image. It is more comforting than the idea that we are living on the very, very crust of a huge ball of mostly inert matter. It can also, though, of course, provide the ultimate proof that there will always be a system in place conspiring to hide the truth right underneath our feet, and that the only true path to freedom is to go against the current and to go counter to all accepted modern scientific thoughts. It puts forward the idea that this is the only true way, in a sense, to carve out a bit of your own world. That to put your ideas out there, even if they are censored, perhaps because they are censored, that the more people try to detract your words, the closer you are to the truth. Well, there are of course various reasons why someone may believe in Hollow Earth, but one I'd like to touch on with Rodney Clough in particular is his summary of the proofs of, as he puts it, those who have been there, there being of course interior Earth, is peppered with Clough's genealogical relationship to the individuals mentioned. So it will have the name of the person who's linked to Hollow Earth and then say sixth cousin three times removed or ninth cousin four times removed links that are so genealogically abstract as to be useless, but nevertheless highlights another desire for these kinds of theorists to build a kind of found family, to link together all of these people and all these people who are popularly detracted to sort of link them into a web of a family that can be acknowledged. I think part of popular modern earth theorists and popular conspiracy theorists in general is this idea of finding a family of like-minded people wherever you find them. 
as the internet, of course, has made it much easier to disseminate these kinds of beliefs. And it is not, it is why ideas such as Hollow Earth have started to attract more attention in recent years, both good and bad. As previously mentioned, a lot of the previous texts had to be sought out to be read, and they were not easily accessible. A lot of them exist within personal letters, only recently widely published, or within scientific journals, which the layman would not have access to. But the internet, by its very nature, provides the ideal home for these kinds of intertextual theories with multidisciplinary approaches, similar to that of hermeticism or theosophy or think of Kircher's atlas. It also provides a home for the discredited and kind of attributes a value to those that are discredited. I mean, previously, even to get your own word out there had a cost implication and a time implication. It was not just so easy to get your ideas out in front of people. That's why Sims's efforts to get his theory out there was so effective as it was a huge time and cost investment that most people would not be able to achieve. He was also one of the, I think, probably the first person to attempt this, just to blanket his idea out there to get some attention, both good and bad. There is no such thing as negative attention. But the internet now is much easier to get your work out there with... Modern, modern conspiracy theories as they stand, your work being discredited kind of stands as a little bit of a badge of honour. We're living in a world now where the harder you try to bury something beneath the surface, the more effort is put into reviving it. The harder you say no, the more people will disagree with you. Which kind of brings me back round to the end. So it's kind of hard to talk about hollow earth theory nowadays and fully divorce it from some of the worst parts of what the theory has come to represent. So as you may have noticed, there is a real journey that we take from early ideas of hollow earth to where we are now. Even if the theories are quite similar on the surface, even if we take the very basic overview, an idea of an interior access through the poles sustaining some kind of life. The way that this theory is approached nowadays is not without some really quite damaging implications. For example, one of the main things that modern hollow earth theory hinges upon is a distrust of authority, specifically scientific authority. There is no lack of scientists who are willing to disprove hollow earth theories if people are willing to listen to it. We can measure the relative density of the earth with vibrations. Scientists are able to work together from different sides of the earth to measure things that were impossible to measure when these theories were first coming into the forethought. Things that were unknowable from an individual can now be proven, can be measured, because science has advanced in these years. But as we've mentioned, there has been a shift from belief in scientists to discrediting of scientists across the board. And it is a worrying trend in conspiracy theorists in general. 
which means that you have to be aware of this when you're talking about conspiracy theories or if you're talking about something which may bring this idea to someone else's attention. The thing that worries me is by talking about hollow earth theories, another person will find it and will fall down the rabbit hole from the Rodney Clough side of things rather than from the Edmund Halley kind of things. Because modern earth, hollow earth theory, unfortunately, as we mentioned, is anti-authoritative, anti-science, and puts forward the idea that certain civilizations may exist in the centre of the earth because they have some sort of inherent value over other civilizations. And there is a pattern to the civilizations that supposedly exist within hollow earth. And there is a pattern to the kinds of civilizations that apparently benefit from the helpful guiding hand of the interior civilizations, and it is very easy to spot, and unfortunately, there's no way around it. There is a inherent racist theme to a lot of modern hollow earth writing. It is quite interesting, though, in the ways that it follows. There's a modern conspiracy theorist sort of narrative, I think, that is being sketched out, And the more I learn about sort of countercultural or even paranormal ideas, anything countercultural in general, as I think they all fall under counterculture, there is a narrative being sketched out here. And I think there are some really eerily similar themes that come out. So, for example, our Admiral Byrd, this American hero, later discredited and held up as a bastion of truth for hollow earth theory, really eerily echoes the inception of modern UFO theories, the idea that at the beginning military men were to be trusted as they were experts in their field, so their word held a lot of weight. And when later they were discredited, again, if anything, it just served to give their words even more weight than before. And it's interesting that these very strict narratives are, like I said, are being sketched out by countercultural theories in general, and it's something I will explore further in the future. But as mentioned, I find it hard to talk about hollow earth. In isolation, a interesting theory with some cool science behind it and a little bit of a history lesson, as unfortunately these anti-authoritative, anti-scientific ideas are so strong now and are held by so many people that it's having a very real death toll. There are people being killed by this idea every day, and I can't really go into it in much detail, but just know I'm saying this in January 2022, so if you're listening to this at the same time, roughly, that I'm recording it, you know what I'm talking about. These ideas, the spreading of these ideas, is killing people every day. A distrust of science, a distrust of authority is killing people every day. I am not advocating for blind trust in either, but... I think there has to be a point at which you have to believe in other humans. I think there has been a distancing of people who work in science and people who work for governments and sort of dehumanising effect on them. At one point, you have to remember that these are still humans, capable of making mistakes on the one hand, but at the same time, not so dissimilar from you. And I think distrusting science and distrusting any governments as a blanket approach is very harmful and I wonder what's left, quite frankly. If you distrust everyone in the world around you, what is left? If all you have left are people who are dead now, who you've never met, who you claim some tangential relationship to, 
what is the point of any of it? I don't really know where to go from this ending, but just know that it's ideas that I will continue to explore. This is what this whole series is about, is just exploring the human side of these theories, as they are created by, spread by, and predicated on humans and human lives. And honestly, I hope Hollow Earth is an expanding and changing theory, and I hope it hope it evolves in the future as to something else that can bring comfort to people more than just painting them as an outsider there is nothing wrong with being an outsider but it has to bring something else to it what is the point of being universally discredited if you if you get nothing from it i'm gonna wind it up now because i am rambling on but thank you so much for listening as usual If you'd like to talk about any of these topics between uploads, please find me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram under Weird Horizon as well. I would love to chat about these and I will continue to endlessly ramble on about what it means to be a person in the modern era as it pertains to countercultural ideas, because that is what I've been talking about this entire time. What do countercultural ideas say about us? That's the question, isn't it? Well... I will join you next time. Much love as always. Bye.